The following audio is from Heritage Christian Fellowship. More information about Heritage Christian Fellowship is available at heritagefellowship.net. Well, I have a horrible poker face. I've always been told that I'm the kind of guy that wears my feelings on my sleeve. I'm not great at faking it. Never have been. That's both a good thing and a bad thing. And uh, so uh, I have, the last 24 hours have been a challenging 24 hours. And I, I, I wrestled with this morning if I was going to just go on with what I had initially written as my introduction to my sermon, or if I was going to pause and be honest about uh, the difficulty of the last 24 hours. And I made the decision to do the latter because I have a horrible poker face. And I just wanted to be honest. You know, yesterday afternoon was an interesting day. I got this really awesome text from my sister. And she let us know that uh, there's a a dear friend of our family named Deirdre. Deirdre has been in... uh, um, renal failure and dialysis for, dialysis for years on the donor list. My sister was trying to see if she could be a donor, and, and it didn't work out. But yesterday, we got news that Deirdre was going to receive a kidney, and so which was awesome. And so yesterday afternoon, she went into surgery, praise God. She got out of surgery. It seems like it went really, really well. And what makes Deirdre really special to our family is she currently has the lungs of my niece. And so seven and a half years ago, she, as a sufferer of cystic fibrosis, Deirdre received a double lung transplant when my 17-year-old niece passed away. And so she's dear to our family, as, and as she lives, a part of my niece, Cameron, lives with her, and so her life is very important to us. And so we had this somber joy yesterday of celebrating this new gift, new lease on life that Deirdre has, that she can live longer, Cameron's lungs can draw the breath of life for her for a few more years. But then the somber joy, because we know what it's like to, to be on the other end of organ donation. We know what it's like to have that silent, terrible walk into the operating room and say goodbye to the person you love. So we were sitting in that place of somber joy yesterday, and that was somber enough, but also beautiful. When when my other sister had sent a random text just saying, hey, I hate to to detract from this conversation about Deirdre, but uh, my sister's oldest son was in an accident yesterday, was ambulanced to the hospital, and has no feeling from his chest out. He's in really rough shape. And so, like, this is my nephew Jacob, who I love, who we love, and it's just a sad situation. You know, he's probably, as we speak, he's having surgery in, in Butte, Montana right now. And, um, and so as we sat in that place, and as I sat in that place last night, ended it this morning, and as I come up on here, kind of this place of life and death and joy and sorrow and celebration and suffering, um, I'm reminded, like, what does the Christian message have to say in moments like this? I was sitting in my office this morning, worshiping a little bit, listening to a a worship song called Living Hope, and these lyrics just struck me. I'm just going to read them to you. How great the chasm that lay between us, how high the mountain I could not climb. In desperation, I turned to heaven and spoke your name into the night. Then through the darkness, your loving kindness tore through the shadows of my soul. The work is finished. The end is written. Jesus Christ, my living hope. I'm reminded we have a living hope. But I'm also reminded the cross came before the empty tomb. The crucifixion came before the resurrection. So much of this life, as you could all attest to, I'm sure, so much of this life is often marked with suffering and difficulty. And if suffering doesn't have the final say, what does our faith in Christ say to our suffering? I love what Timothy Keller writes in his book, Walking with God Through Pain and Suffering. He says this, he says, While other worldviews lead us to sit in the midst of life's joys, foreseeing the coming sorrows, Christianity empowers its people to sit in the midst of the world's sorrows 
tasting the coming joy. I think of what the Apostle John saw, the author of our text today. He saw Jesus living. He heard Jesus call him to follow. He he, he saw Jesus perform miracles, and then he saw Jesus arrested and crucified and killed, and he wept bitterly, and then he saw Jesus alive again. And he writes as a man who saw the risen Christ, who recognizes that suffering doesn't have the final say, that death is not the final line of the story for those of us that are in Christ. There is great hope. Yes, the crucifixion comes before the resurrection, but there is resurrection hope for those of us that are in Christ. Amen? So the words words of 1 John speak to us today. They speak of this historical and spiritual truth of Jesus. I'd encourage you to open up to the book of 1 John. As we get into 1 John, uh, I just want to remind you that that John is... is, uh, 1 John, it's it's these three letters at the end of the New Testament. The Gospel of John comes in the first four books of the New Testament. Uh, I'll make an argument that I believe that the Apostle John penned all of them. I believe the Apostle John wrote John the Gospel, and I believe he wrote these three letters as well. And as John speaks in 1 John, he, he speaks about how he heard Jesus in person. He speaks about how he saw Jesus in person. He talks about how he looked intently upon Jesus with a searching gaze for years and years in person. I mean, realistically, authentically, physically. He touched Jesus with his very hands, he tells us. John isn't speaking about a religious idea or a philosophy. He's not upholding some ethereal concept, some Christless spirituality. Instead, he tells us in the text today that that Christ was made manifest. Jesus is God in the flesh, and he was revealed to John. In part, 1 John was written to uphold this historical Jesus. He, 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 he our author, John, is going to point us to the historicity of Jesus Christ, uh, the suffering servant who became, who became the conquering king. And in so doing, as, as John points us to the historical Christ, uh, he does so in the face of these teachings about Jesus that were circulating at that time that, that saw Jesus as some sort of immaterial spirituality. And so by upholding the real Christ, he is refuting a false Christ in the messages of, of, of false teachers that were spreading the message of a false Christ. I like what one pastor says, and then I'll get into our text. One pastor says this, Contrary to what false teachers taught, experiencing Christ and his gospel is not some mystical spirituality transcendent secret insight reserved for only those elite who ascend to the same higher understanding. No, no, no. John is telling his readers in our letter today, John is telling his readers, even those who are young in their faith, that they could apprehend the actual historical truth about the word of life, the personal work of Jesus Christ as proclaimed in the gospel. And as we look at John's gospel in the first chapter, he he talks about Jesus when he talks about how the word became flesh and dwelt among us and saw And we saw his glory, glory as of the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. And so Jesus Christ, as John is going to point out to us, as he's going to paint this picture for us as we journey through this book, Jesus Christ is the God-man. He is fully God. He is fully man. And, And John experienced this reality through his natural senses. And he was a true witness to the incarnation. And so, let's pick up first four verses of 1 John. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we looked upon and have touched with our hands concerning the word of life. 
the life was made manifest, and we have seen it and testified to it and proclaimed to you the eternal life which was with the Father and was made manifest to us. That which we have seen and heard, we proclaim also to you, so that you too may have fellowship with us, and indeed our fellowship is with the Father and with His Son, Jesus Christ. And we are writing these things so that our joy may be complete. I'm thinking about a lost the page of my notes. Hold on a second. As we study the, the, the book of John for the next eight weeks, uh, we're, we're going to see the, 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 these three letters, the, the, the first of which we're going to study, first John, uh, the, the second John and third John, kind of go together with what John is saying and with what he's revealing here. And, and if you look at kind of the historical uh, uh, context of what's being written here, we see that in first John that he's writing this letter that we're going uh, to study to, to warn against false teachers uh, these teachers had created a crisis in the church. People were being enticed to turn away from the historical, biblical Christ. And, and some believe that the, the false teaching that some people were being enticed away from here in the, uh, the first century was the beginnings of Gnosticism, a heresy that invaded the church in the second century. And so John is writing this letter to a series of house churches to warn them of this false teaching. As you get into 2nd and 3rd John, uh, we're not going to study those in this series, but they're much smaller books if you've ever read them. 2nd John is, is, a, is John is continuing. He, he, he writes as John the Elder, and he's warning a specific church, to, uh, telling the specific church within a network of house churches that they shouldn't offer support to these dangerous false teachers who are denying the biblical Christ and leading many astray. And then in 3rd John, Again, we're not going to study this, but just so that we understand the context, John is writing to a, a, a faithful believer named Gaius, who's a member of a house church, and Gaius is a benevolent man who is supporting the Christian workers of his day, and so John is writing to commend him in supporting this Christian work that is taking place in their midst. And John completes his third letter by, by encouraging the care and the support of Christian workers. And so the first and third John, or second and third John, are written by someone who calls himself John the Elder. I, I'm absolutely uh, of the belief that first John, though we don't see a, a name of an author given in this letter, we don't see uh, the, the name of the recipient in this letter of first John. It just kind of goes right into what we read this morning. I, I believe as you read first John, and as you lay it over the top of the gospel of John, to me, those, the, the, the writing style, uh, the, the illustrations, the metaphors that are used in the Gospel of John versus the first letter of John are so similar. I just think, and I agree with many who have come before me, that the, the Apostle John is most likely the author of the book we're going to study over the next eight weeks. So I'm going to often refer to him as John because I believe that's exactly who he is, the Apostle, the, the one whom Jesus loved, the son of Zebedee, the one who penned the Gospel of John, the book of Revelation. And so through the entirety of the series, that's who I'm going to be referring to when I say the author. And so what John is doing here is he's writing about the most vital aspects of faith. He, he wants his audience to know Christian truth from Christian error. He embraces the basics of the gospel. He points his audience to the physical realness of Jesus. And that's something that's so just thick in our text. 
as you read it, you're going to see this tactile language that John is using. And I think sometimes we have a tendency as Christians to kind of over-spiritualize even the way in which we think about Jesus. We kind of imagine the semi-transparent, pale-faced deity that hovers off in the distance. And what John does for us here in this text is he, he makes Jesus so real and physical and present. And he reminds us that Jesus isn't some idea. He is a, an historical truth. He's saying in, in our dark world, this physical Christ has been revealed. It is God in the flesh, and he is our light. In our cold world, God brings the warmth of love. In our dying world, God brings life. And when you and I lack confidence, when we're struggling, when the chips are down, these truths about who God is as revealed through Christ gives us confidence and gives us certainty. And as we read the passage we see kind of the allusions back to the Gospel of John and even back to Genesis. Look at the first six words of our, of our, verse, of our passage today. That which was from the beginning. Of course, this will remind us of Genesis 1-1 that we just got done studying. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. But do you remember how John starts his Gospel? John chapter 1, verses 1 and 2. In the beginning was the Word, meaning Jesus. In the beginning was Jesus, the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, and He was in the beginning with God. And so John, in his gospel, and even in our letter today, makes the unquestioned assertion that Jesus was at creation in the beginning as creator. He's eternally existing. He's preeminent. And so now in his letter, what John is saying to his audience, which is kind of a mind-blowing concept, if you have not been exposed to this thinking, He's saying this creator God who, who, who holds the, the, the cosmos in balance, who, who is the Alpha, the Omega, who, who is outside of time, who is all-powerful, all, all who is all-knowing, this God can be heard with the human ear. He, he, he was seen with the human eye. He was touched with John's very hands, Jesus Christ in the flesh, that which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon and have touched with our hands concerning the word of life. The word of life who was from the beginning was made manifest, John says in verse 2. He has been revealed. The word manifest means to reveal or to make visible that which was hidden. Here's how the New Living Translation puts it. The one, who was, the one who is life from God was shown to us, and we have seen him. These apostles who had heard and seen and touched Jesus, they didn't just sit on their hands. These apostles didn't just, just take this amazing experience they had with, with God in the flesh and sit on their hands. No, no, no. Once filled with the Holy Spirit, the book of Acts Chronicles, they testified to it. And that's what verse 2 tells us. John writes, we testify to it and proclaim to you the eternal life which was with the Father and was made manifest to us. This eternal creator God who has been made known to us in Jesus Christ whom we have heard and seen and touched. He is eternal life. And John says, and we're making him known to you. We saw him, we interacted, but you can know him like we knew him. They were shown Jesus, and now they want to show Jesus to others. God is knowable in and through his son Jesus. John says, I, I know him, or to know him is to have fellowship with us. This, these apostles who are proclaiming their experience, their apostolic proclamation. He says, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God that you may know that you have eternal life. That's the very end of his book. John gives us his thesis of why he's writing this letter. John 5, 13, 1 John 5, 13, I write these things to you who believe that in the name of the Son of God, you may know that you have eternal life, he writes. 
And so what we're going to see in these four verses are just simply two things. We see his argument. We see John's argument. And we see his appeal. We see John's argument. And we see his appeal. What's his argument? If you want to write this down, I would encourage you to write this down. Here's the argument. It's just a simple argument. He's saying that eyewitness testimony is trustworthy. It's a simple idea to think about. He's saying that eyewitness testimony is trustworthy. So the apostles were eyewitnesses to Jesus, to his life, death, resurrection, and ascension. And so they were proclaiming their experience as apostles. The apostles were proclaiming it was the apostolic proclamation. That's what has become scripture. We have in our hands the apostolic proclamation of eyewitnesses. And what John wants us to know this morning is that the eyewitness testimony is trustworthy. What the scriptures revealed to us about Jesus Christ is trustworthy. That's the main thing he wants us to understand today. He's not spouting some empty philosophy of life. He's not upholding an empty set of beliefs. He's not arguing for a worldview. His argument is centered on a person, on the one who was from the beginning. His argument is rooted in Jesus Christ, in his eyewitness experience. His argument is so tactile. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, we looked upon and have touched with our hands. He reiterates that in verse 3. Touched and heard and seen. He's not passing along simply a message that was passed from, from, from ear to ear through generations like a, like, a, like a legend or a myth or a fable. No, no, no. He, he's passing along first-hand experience. He's talking about the Messiah he knew. These are the words of a man who spent intimate moments with the word of life with Jesus Christ himself. In these first two verses that we read, there's some interesting things that make the letter of 1 John different than other epistles or other letters in the New Testament. Unique things about this that I think we need to pay attention to. Three observations uh, that we can make from these three verses. David Helm helped me to see this. He's a, he's a theologian who I appreciate. One thing we see in these first two verses of the opening of this letter is we see an unconventional opening. Normally, if you read letters in the New Testament, they have an author, they have an audience, and they have a greeting, almost always. I mean, if you just take John's, or the Apostle Paul's writings, right? The, the Apostle Paul, in his letters, he, he says, Paul, called uh, by the will of God to be an apostle of Jesus Christ. Uh, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God. He, he, okay, he, he lets you know who he's, who, who's writing, he lets you know who the audience is, and he lets you know the purpose of writing. But John doesn't do that. He doesn't include any of those features. He just kind of gets right into it. And, and as we read this letter, and we will over the next eight weeks, it's less of a letter, like there's not chronological, sequential thinking that you would think about in a letter. It's more of like a poetic sermon. And he, and he has these two ideas of, of light and love, and he kind of circulates around these ideas in a way that doesn't make a whole lot of sense to our chronologically thinking minds. But the letter reads very intimate. There's a pastoral tone to these words. It seems as if John is writing to an audience who he knows and loves. These are people he pastors. He calls them beloved and my children. It's a pastoral tone. It's clear that John, as he writes these letters, he is deeply concerned about the heart of his people. The second thing we see is there's an unconventional establishment of authority in this, in this letter. Like I was saying about Paul. Paul always would mention his name and his, his apostleship. In his letter to the Galatians, Paul says, here's how he starts it. Paul, an apostle... Not from men, nor of man, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father who raised him from the dead. S 
So in a sense, when Paul opens his letters as an apostle, he's saying, hey, let me tell you who I am. Let me qualify what I'm about to write with, with who I am. You know, these things to be true. But, but in this letter, the author, John, doesn't seem concerned with that. It makes you draw the conclusion that he, he intimately knew the people he was writing to. He didn't have to drop his title to, to know that they knew he was an apostle. They knew this about him. And what he does, is, rather, than, rather than say, hey, I'm an apostle, he just says, let me uphold to you. Let me just, let me exalt Christ. I don't need to exalt myself in any way. I just want to hold up this Jesus who I saw and who I heard and who I touched. You can behold him, that you can see him. The authority of, of John's message lies within his eyewitness experience. He, he, he saw the one whom he heard and touched. And then the, the third thing that makes this letter a little bit unique is, is there's a credible authorship here that, that really impacts us as listeners. This letter is perfectly situated to instill confidence. I think of my nephew right now sitting in a hospital bed in Butte, Montana. I think of my friend Deirdre in a hospital room in, in Madison, Wisconsin, recovering from kidney transplant. I think of the, the donating family right now who's mourning over the, the loved one who they saw wheeled into an operating room yesterday. I'm thinking about the situations that might be befalling you in your life, difficult situations that maybe cause you to say, God, are you real? Do you care? Are you concerned with the grief, the sorrow, the struggle, the strife, whatever I may go into? Are you, are you concerned about me? How can I know, God, that you are really involved and, and intimately connected with what I'm going through? And as we read this letter, there's just such an, an, an authority, a credible authority to the things that John is saying that it instills confidence in us as, as readers, as believers, like, no, this really is true. The words of the letter are credible. The human author of this text, John, he had firsthand experience with Jesus. Think about what that means. Think about the unique position he was in. He saw the life of Jesus. He heard Jesus call him to, to be an apostle, to be a disciple. He, he heard the, the public teachings of Jesus. He also heard the intimate conversations uh, with Jesus that aren't recorded in Scripture. John saw Jesus raise the dead to life. He saw him walk on water. He saw him speak, and, and nature obeyed his speaking orders. He saw the horrors of Jesus being arrested and brutalized. He saw the lifeblood drain out of him as he was nailed between two thieves on a cross. He watched him die and breathe his last breath, and he thought in his spirit, it's done. Everything we thought this was about is over. They gave up. They went back to their old lives. They went into hiding. And then they saw, three days later, the risen Christ. And John, the author of these words, saw that. He saw the holes in his hands, the hole in his side, the holes in his feet, the, the resurrected, glorified Christ. He watched him ascend into heaven as an eyewitness. And now he's saying, listen, this is what you need to know. He's a man whose life was radically transformed by an encounter with the living God. And he's begging his audience to listen. There's such a credible uh, essence to what he's writing here. If you were to ask a lawyer, what's important in an eyewitness? They would tell you there's three things that are important in an eyewitness. They would say, number one, personal knowledge. If you're going to bring an expert onto the stand and they're going to uh, testify about a certain thing, they have to be an expert on the thing they're going to testify about. What is John testifying about? Jesus. He walked with Jesus for three years. He was his disciple. He lived the resurrection. He lived the explosion of the Christian church. He lived the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. And he's speaking with absolute personal knowledge, which only speaks to the credible nature of his testimony or his proclamation. What's the other thing that's important in an eyewitness? How about personal character? If you go back and you look at first century writings, 
church fathers, the writings of John are unquestioned. His letter, you look at like what Polycarp and some other early church fathers, they were upholding the letters of John as scripture before they were officially canonized. His character is unquestioned. What's another thing that's important with a witness? How about personal liability? How about, how about the, the past conduct or the future conduct of an eyewitness? If it's bad, it can take their testimony. What kind, of, what kind of personal conduct, what kind of personal liability do we see here with, with John? Well, well, he wrote Revelation, right? So we, we see radical obedience, radical obedience until the day he died. So this, this, this testimony in 1 John is so credible. And I don't know if you're sitting through a, a, a dark night of the soul experience, a heavy-hearted moment like I am experiencing this morning, but I hope that I hope, I hope you just realize how incredible this is. That John saw Jesus die, and he saw Jesus alive again, and he saw Jesus ascend, and he testifies to that. If our Lord overcomes death, what does that do to the dark night of the soul you're currently experiencing? I mean, the light of the hope that we have in Christ eclipses the darkest dark, the longest night. And so the Christian faith is centered on Jesus Christ. As Christians, we believe in Jesus, God's only begotten Son, conceived of the Holy Spirit. We believe in His substitutionary, atoning death in our place. We believe in His bodily resurrection, His ascension into heaven. We believe in His perpetual intercession for His people. We believe in the personal and visible return of Christ to earth one day. My experience as a pastor for 20 years has been oftentimes has been this. Someone goes through a dark night of the soul. They go through a painful season of life, a divorce, a failing of a business, a personal health struggle, the loss of a loved one, uh, some sort of a stimulus that strips them of self-sufficiency, and so they begin to reach outside of themselves, which is a good thing. God, in his grace, introduces suffering into our life that we learn to not be self-sufficient. And so they come to church because they're looking for answers. And they come and And they like the idea of a moral framework. They like the idea of a guidebook to life. They like the idea of a a body of people they can connect with, but they don't fully surrender to the lordship of Jesus. They they, they kind of ascend to a kind of an intellectual ascent to the idea, the concept, the philosophy of a higher deity, but there's not a, a, a coming to, to saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. And, and then when life doesn't work out the way they thought it would, I've heard people say in one way or another over the years, yeah, I gave Christianity a try. It didn't work for me. And I, I'm just reminded again that Christianity isn't simply a moral framework for life. It's just not, a, it's not simply a set of convictions that guide the decisions we make. It's not a spirituality based on ideas. It's not an esoteric faith in the mysterious something up there or out there. The Christian faith rests upon the incarnation. God became flesh in dateable history in Jesus Christ. Our faith is based on the life of Jesus Christ who walked on planet Earth historically. 
Our, our faith is, is based on the death and resurrection of Jesus, the ascension of Jesus, the present reign of Jesus, the eventual return of Jesus as historical events that are really going to happen, all of which is rooted in dateable history. My son did a, a lecture to his, his, his class at North Medford High School, the last project on his last day of school. He shared a, a story about why apologetics is important in the Christian church, and he tried to convince his class of the historicity of Jesus Christ. Hallelujah. Public school have that. But he... He did, and Elijah's like, Dad, there's over 40 sources uh, in, in ancient writings uh, at the time of Christ that confirm his existence outside of the Bible. Did you know that? I'm like, yeah, it's incredible. Maybe you need to hear that today. This isn't a fable. It's not a fantasy. It's historical fact. We center our faith on the historical Christ who really was born of a virgin. Jesus really did hail from a small mountain village in northern Israel called Nazareth. He really did make claims of messiahship and then back up those claims. He really did have disciples. He really did perform miracles. He really did preach the kingdom. He really was arrested. He really was historically tried and crucified. He did hang on a tree. He did get placed in a tomb. He did rise to life. He really did appear to over 500 people in his resurrected form, and he really did ascend to heaven. And I know this sounds like I'm just beating a dead horse, but the author wants you to hear this. What he's saying is this. He's saying, hey, listen, if you doubt, if the dark night of the soul is causing you to doubt God is present in your life, if other, other false teachings are tickling your ears and you want to turn away from the preached Christ, Christ crucified, he's like, listen, we heard him call our names. We heard him teach in synagogues. We heard him proclaim the kingdom of God. We heard his quiet voice speak to us in personal interactions. We heard him say up on that cross, it is finished. We heard his post-resurrection voice commission us to be his church and his messengers to the whole world. John is telling us we saw him. We looked upon him intently. We saw him calm the storm and heal the sick and raise the dead and feed the thousands. We saw him confront the religious elite. We saw him get arrested and sentenced. We saw all of it. We touched his pre-resurrection body. We touched his post-resurrection body. We touched the holes in his hands, in his side, and in his feet. Our eyewitness testimony bears all the authority you need. And we all went to the grave boldly proclaiming that testimony, all of them. So to the Christian who asks, how can I have assurance that this whole thing is real? First John answers that question. To the skeptic or the seeker who says, how can I believe that this is real? First John gives you some real significant meat to chew on as you're considering claims of truth. We already take so much by faith. I was thinking today about the Oregon Trail. I, I didn't ride a wagon on the Oregon Trail. I know you can see divots in certain spots. I know that there's this 2,000-mile trail from Independence, Missouri to Oregon City, Oregon. I read about it in history books. I believe it to be true. I didn't see it. But why do I believe it to be true? Because credible eyewitnesses recorded what they saw and experienced. Exactly what we have here in 1 John. Whether it was 2,000 years ago, 200 years ago, or 20 hours ago, we conclude that many things are true because we trust the eyewitness testimony. And John puts us right where we need to be to make an informed decision about Jesus. The apostles were eyewitnesses. They made proclamations of what they saw. So then what's the appeal? If he's making, a, if he's making an argument that eyewitness testimony is trustworthy in the first two verses, what is the appeal in the second two verses? Here's what I think the appeal is. I think John is telling us trusting this testimony is the way to eternal life. Trusting this eyewitness testimony is eternal life. That's what he's saying. The, the argument is the eyewitness testimony is trustworthy. 
Because there's all these false teachers at the time John's writing this that are trying to pull people away from biblical Christ, from, from the historical Jesus. They're trying to make it all about spirituality and nothing about the physical nature of the kingdom. And so, so John sets them straight. Here's the argument. We touched his body. We saw him physically. We heard him speak. And now his appeal is, so trust this testimony because it's the way to eternal life. Do you remember what he says at the end of the book in, in chapter 5, verse 13? I read it earlier. The thesis of why this letter was written, to, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God that you may know that you have eternal life. He's introducing us again to Christ that we may know that we know that we know. How can you know that you know God? He says, read this text and believe it to be true. That's how you can know. In verse 2, he says, the life was made manifest. Christ was made manifest to us. And we have seen it and testified to it and proclaim it to you. The eternal life, which was with the Father and was made manifest to us. And then here in verses 3 and 4, not that, that which we have seen and heard, we proclaimed also to you, he says, so that you too may have fellowship with us and indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with the Son, Jesus Christ. We are writing these things so that our joy may be complete. So the author, John, is making an appeal to his audience. He's saying, your fellowship with God is secure so long as your fellowship with the apostolic proclamation is secure. What is the apostolic proclamation? It's the proclamation the apostles made concerning Jesus Christ. It's the scriptures, it's Christ as revealed to us through his word. It was the personal manifestation of eternal life in the historical person of Jesus Christ, which was the crucial thing that John wants us to understand in this letter. His aim is that you and I need to retain fellowship with this eyewitness account, the Bible, for in so doing, as we interact, as we meet the risen, living Christ through the Word of God, we, we, we share in fellowship with the Father, fellowship with the Son, fellowship with the saints. One of our core values as a church is we believe in right doctrine and biblical interpretation. So one of the reasons why we hold God's word in such high regard is because we believe it to be the apostolic proclamation, the, 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 the truth about who Jesus is. This points us to Jesus. This reveals Christ to us. And so a core value, one of our five core values is, is, is honoring and respecting and upholding right doctrine and biblical interpretation. And so so in these first four verses, John is simply giving an argument that, that eyewitness testimony is trustworthy, and he's making appeal to those of us with ears to hear. Trusting this testimony leads to eternal life. And when you compare the hope of glory, when you compare the hope of eternal life next to whatever station of life you may be in, the hope of glory, the hope that one day we have a God who will wipe every tear from our eyes, the hope that one day when we stand in the presence of Jesus, he, the, the, the sorrow and suffering and pain will be no more. The mourning will be no more. He makes all things new. The hope of that truth, this eternal life that comes through Christ, is that the light, the hope that that creates, it eclipses any darkness we may go through, even my nephew. My sister sent me a text this morning saying that she talked with Jacob before surgery, and he shared with her that he's trusting God. He's trusting God with whatever happens. So incredibly encouraged to get that report this morning. So how can you know that you know God? Whether it's my nephew in a bed or Deirdre in a hospital room recovering or a grieving family, mourning the loss of a loved one or whatever station of life you may be in today, whatever life situation, here's what I know to be true. We have a God who has become flesh in his son Jesus. He has... He has died in our place. He is our 
substitutionary, atoning sacrifice who bore the, the wrath our sin deserves when he went to the cross. He satisfied the divine justice of God upon the cross. The death that you and I deserve because our sin was poured out upon Christ. Jesus defeated death. He defeated Satan. He defeated sin. He's alive today at the right hand of the Father. And he invites us to trust him. And, and trusting in Christ is eternal life, like John says. This is the testimony John bears witness to, and this is the truth that informs us as the church. This is the truth that informs our worship. Would you pray with me? Father, I'm thankful for this word this morning. I'm thankful for the way it's encouraging my spirit in the midst of a, a difficult day. God, I'm thankful that you have given us this book, First John, that we can look at and read and sit under and study and meet you through. And I pray, God, that as we study this text over the next eight weeks, God, that you would use it mightily in our lives. God, that you would use it to, to, to elicit worship. God, that you would use it to, to, to embolden our faith. God, that you would use it to, to peel back the scales that, that we would see you clearly, see you fully. Uh, God, I pray that you would use the preaching of this book over the next eight weeks, God, to, to, to shape and form and mold your church more into the image of, of your son Jesus. And God, I pray that you would be glorified as we study this work and as we consider the gospel, the hope that we have in the gospel. And so God, I'm just praying this morning for, yeah, I think of my nephew, Montana. I think of my friend, Deidre, in Wisconsin. And I think of the hundreds of names that are on the hearts of the people right now in this room. And the countless situations, God, where it is difficult and painful and unsure and trying. God, you've overcome all things. And God, I just ask that the hope of the gospel, God, the hope of Christ would, would invade our lives. And that, God, we would learn to cling to you no matter what the day may bring, God, we know that you're above those things and your promises endure forever. God, help us to cling to you. And even in the even in the dark days, God, as we're going to lift our voices here in a minute, God, even those of us who may have some sorrow on our hearts today, God, may we lift our voice to you because you are worthy of our worship, especially on those difficult days. God, we love you. We pray these things in Jesus' name.